yesterday I said that speakers are never more coherent than in their talk outlines, and uh, today you'll see that the talk outline is the epitome of clarity, <laughs> in that there is nothing, no record of where I intended to go today, uh, apart from the scribbles that perhaps the Keeny Beanies put down on that beautiful white piece of paper. Well, um, late one evening, as I was enjoying the night sky out on a friend's balcony after a pretty good party, um, a fascinating conversation broke out among the guests at a dinner party on next door's balcony. Um, these next door neighbours were, I guess you might say, um, your classic 20-something Chardonnay yuppies. Right, you've got the picture in your head? Um, this was on the North Shore especially, uh, which is where I grew up, so I'm digging myself here. They were hardly what you would call the religious type. And yet at one point, the conversation turned decisively toward religion. Uh, they were speaking pretty loudly, let me say. I wasn't being a complete sticky beak. Um, sparked by a passing comment one of them made... Uh, about a wedding she'd been to for some happy, clappy Christians, as she described them. One by one, the guests over their Chardonnay were telling their own religious beliefs. And the topics ranged from yoga to transcendental meditation to God to suffering, the meaning of life, death, and so on. Uh, one of the guests offered his own philosophical account of the difference between Western, and particularly Christian religion, and Eastern, and particular Buddhist religion. Uh, he said, I don't like all those rules that Western religion imposes on you. I like the kind of free spirituality that Buddhism gives you without any of those onerous rules. Uh, he said this as he sipped his Chardonnay, completely unaware of the Buddha's ban on alcohol. And the others, <laughs> and the others all went, mmm, in agreement. One of the comments stood out for me as very self-revealing sparked by a very cynical comment made by one of them about organised forms of worship. I guess the sort of thing I get up to most Sundays. One of them then responded by saying, yeah, but don't you think there's something in it? I really like the idea of being grateful to someone for the things in my life. The comment dropped in on the dinner party like a revelation. Because the response from the others was complete silence for three or four seconds, which was a long time at this dinner party. <laughs> Grateful to someone for the things in my life. Now, I admit it was perhaps a little unethical of me to eavesdrop as long as I did, half an hour or so. <laughs> but I, I did figure at the time that um, I could you know, justify it as research, the sort of thing I might be able to weave into a future talk. Um, after the conversation ended, I went in and scribbled down notes of the conversations. <laughs> that justifies it, right? What struck me about this conversation was that although it was obviously the first time these friends had shared their spiritual viewpoints with each other, it was equally apparent they'd all thought about these topics at some depth and at some length. I came away reminded of something I've known for ages but very easily forget. No matter how secular, materialistic and post-Christian our society becomes, questions of spirituality just hang around. They don't seem to be going away. Why are we here? 
To whom can I be grateful? What's the meaning of life? And a thousand other spiritual questions that have plagued humanity throughout the centuries. We appear to be incurably inquisitive about realities deeper than the waistline, the share portfolio, the marks we get in exams, the future career, and so on. The social sciences actually confirm um, this anecdotal evidence. Uh, this very important survey, uh, the World Values Survey, found recently that belief in God in Australia is at 80.1%. Atheists make up 5.3%. As we gaze down the immense corridor of centuries of historical and anthropological study, it is no exaggeration to say that every single culture about which anthropologists and historians know anything significant has made the religious pursuit one of its core cultural themes. Even what we know of Neanderthal man uh, tends toward the view that they had religious beliefs. It's to do with the burial forms that we found. What I'm saying is that spirituality is in the truest sense of the term common sense. Like the human fascination with art and music, or our desire for social organisation and personal intimacy, spirituality is one of the few universally shared premises of humanity. It is common sense. Now, that much is easy to concede. It's simply an historical observation. But far trickier is the philosophical question that arises from this historical observation. Which, if any, of the great spiritual traditions of the world is true or valid amid the cacophony of competing religious claims out there? Can you tell if any one of them or two of them is actually real, corresponding to truth? Perhaps the most common secular response to this question of where you find spiritual reality amid the cacophony, is the position known as pluralism, something I'm sure you've all heard before. The belief that basically when it comes to spiritual truth, truth is plural, not singular. Truth is plural, not singular. Now obviously pluralism does not reject all the spiritual options, as say the atheist is prone to do. Rather the pluralist affirms all the spiritual options as perhaps different paths up the same mountain. As I eavesdropped on this conversation next door, I was struck by the pluralistic assumption of these 20-something Chardonnay yuppies. Um, they all had their own views, but actually they were wonderfully affirming of everyone else's views. Um, there was no attempt to justify their beliefs or contrast their beliefs. There was just this great pooling of ideas, as if they were talking about their favourite Chardonnay or their favourite Green Day song, or something like that. This is classically Australian. We not only have this innate curiosity about the big questions, we also have this almost dogmatic insistence that all the answers to the spiritual questions are equal. Are equally true or equally valid? Pluralism. There are, I think, two forms of pluralism, and it's important to understand them, because they're really quite different. There's what you might call popular pluralism and sophisticated pluralism. 
Popular pluralism is the pluralism you meet in the pub or the cafe or on the lawn of the university. It's basically the position that says all religions teach essentially the same thing. That's popular pluralism. Sure, they differ on the name you give God, you know, Vishnu or Shiva or Allah or whatever it is, but they all basically agree on the really important stuff. The basic problem with this popular pluralism is that in trying to affirm all religious perspectives, it ends up honouring none of them. Because for the most part, the great religious traditions of the world make claims that are utterly contradictory with one another. Superficially, they agree. Most religions on the planet do say prayers, though not all, but most do. But at the more fundamental level, the great religions of the world do not teach the same thing. Let me unpack a couple of the most obvious contradictions between the faiths. Hinduism teaches, as many of you will know, the existence of many gods or divas, all emanating from the ultimate source, Brahman, which is an impersonal source, which emanates its characteristics in personal deities. That's the belief of polytheism. But Guru Nanak, a once devout Hindu, came along and said, no, there aren't many deities, there is just one deity. And we found the Sikh religion as a result. Then Siddhartha Gautama, well actually much earlier, um, rejected his native Hinduism, um, not by proposing the existence of one god, Siddhartha Gautama suggested that there is no deity at all, and that the worship of deities is a distraction from true religion. Now you don't need a degree in mathematics to work out there's a fundamental difference here. If there's one god only, there can't be many gods. And if there are many gods, there can't be one god only. And if there's no God, as Buddha said, then there can't be one God or many gods. It's problematic. Or take the central Christian belief that Jesus is the Son of God who was crucified and was raised to life again. This is um, rather central to Christianity. Without it, you don't have a thing called Christianity. But of course, modern Judaism rejects this fundamental claim insists that Jesus was just one of the many pretenders to the title of Messiah, Son of God. Orthodox Judaism says the true Messiah is yet to come. It gets more complicated when you introduce Islam, as we spoke yesterday. Uh, Surah 5 of the Quran makes very clear that Jesus did not die on a cross. Surah 3 makes clear that he was not the Son of God. Many, many other contradictions could be explored. I'm simply trying to point out that you can only insist on the harmony of the great faiths in terms of what they believe by ignoring some of their most basic beliefs. In fact, in my experience, the only people really to say that all religions teach the same thing are those who have only ever studied one religion or none. In fact, it's a little like you know the Anglo-Australian, and I hope you haven't met too many of these, who walk through Chinatown, come out the other end and say, boy, all Asians look the same, don't they? There's an ignorance to the statement, not to mention rudeness. That's someone who hasn't hung out with Asian people. Actually, some of my Asian friends say that all you whiteys look the same, but anyway, we'll leave that to one side. <laughs> but you can see my point. At a distance, perhaps, the religions look the same. The closer you get, the more ridiculous that statement seems. Now, of course, Hindus, Sikhs, Buddhists, Muslims, Jews and Christians 
must learn to honour one another as fellow members of the human race. I'm not questioning that at all. But friends, they can't for a second admit that each other's beliefs are all equally true. Not without turning off the part of the brain that allows you to walk across the road when the light is green, not red. At this point I find myself in unlikely agreement with perhaps the 20th century's greatest atheist. Uh, The Richard Dawkins of the 20th century was Lord Bertrand Russell. And he said, it is evident as a matter of logic that since the great world religions disagree, not more than one of them can be true. His money was on none of them being true, but he's quite right to say not more than one of them can be true. But that's popular pluralism. The pluralism that says religions basically teach the same thing. And I trust there aren't too many of you in that category. There is a more sophisticated path, though, open to those who want to insist on the universal oneness of the great faiths, aware of the intractable differences between the great faiths of the world, sophisticated pluralists argue that although there are very few explicit truths shared by the great faiths, there is an implicit macro-truth made apparent by them all. This macro-truth, implicit in all the religions, has very little to do with their explicit beliefs, whether Allah requires five daily prayers, um, whether the Buddha's path of denial of the self and desire leads to enlightenment, whether Jesus died on a cross for sins. These are all culturally contingent responses to the ultimate spiritual reality, that there is some ineffable truth out there to which human beings are attracted. Now, within academia, perhaps the most famous, certainly voluminous, scholar of sophisticated pluralism is John Hick, professor at the University of Birmingham, actually holds many positions around the world. For Hick, religions constitute not revelations of spiritual reality, but culturally conditioned responses to spiritual reality. Individual religions are to be thought of as mere signposts or emblems of a reality they don't actually possess or describe. They are signposts or emblems of a reality they don't themselves accurately describe. Um, How Hick and other pluralists know this is never discussed in pluralistic literature. I am fascinated by that. It is simply argued, affirmed, and illustrated with something resembling evangelistic zeal, it seems to me. For instance, John Hick brilliantly employs this sketch, first used by Joseph Jastrow in the study of illusions at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century. Those that are studying psychology will have seen this image before. As you can see, the sketch is an ambiguous figure drawn to look like a duck going left and a rabbit going right. I'm going to give you a moment to make sure you can spot both of them. (laughs) There have been times when I've been three or four sentences later in this lecture and someone goes, ah! (laughs) You've all got it? Ducks and rabbits. Okay, here's the thing. If shown to a culture that only knew ducks, not rabbits, they're going to see a duck, right? If shown to another culture that only knew rabbits, didn't know ducks, they're going to see rabbits, 
Right? The difference is merely one of perception. The contradiction isn't real. It just depends on your culturally contingent perspective. Each group is justified in variously seeing a duck or a rabbit, depending on their perspective. Hick then compares this optical illusion with the great religions of the world. Just as the duck-knowing group could only see a duck, and the rabbit-knowing group could only see a rabbit, so Muslims think they see Allah. Christians think they see Jesus. Hindus think they see Vishnu or Shiva or some other deity. No one's wrong, and no one's right. It's just perception, culturally contingent. Now, you know, when I first came across this argument in one of John Hicks' books, I thought, wow, that's pretty compelling. Until I realised the hidden truth in the analogy. In reality, this sketch is neither a sketch of a rabbit nor a sketch of a duck. It's actually a sketch deliberately drawn to look like a duck and a rabbit. Yeah? The unknowing subjects in the experiment might be justified in variously seeing a duck or a rabbit. But the person conducting the experiment is under no such illusion. He or she knows that it is simply an illusion designed to produce rival schemata illusion. That's the assumption of pluralism. Without realising it, John Hicks' analogy exposes the hidden assumption of sophisticated pluralists. In essence, pluralism insists that although the world religions are entitled to their perceptions of reality, the truth of the situation, unknown to the religions but known to the pluralist, is that this reality lies beyond the religion. Pluralist is the one conducting the experiment. He or she sees beyond the mere perception to the ultimate reality that reality is ineffable, incomprehensible, beyond reach. This is a big assumption. Pluralism of the sophisticated kind claims to see a bigger truth which none of the individual religions has been able to see before and then suggests that the smaller truths the religions thought they could see are mere ducks and rabbits. Illusions. By describing religions as true in a manner none of them has ever described before and false in all the ways they have always affirmed, pluralism mounts a very high intellectual ground indeed. An intellectual ground that I think surpasses that of the great monolithic faiths. It's true that Christians, on the basis of Jesus' resurrection, insist, make the grand claim that God is to be found in Christ and that therefore two-thirds of the world is mistaken. But this can't be any less valid than the tiny minority of Western pluralists arguing that 
the entire religious population of the world is enamoured with illusions, which he or she as the pluralist can see behind. The arrogance of pluralism is intensified by the fact that, as I said before, pluralists make no attempt to justify their position. How do you know, Professor Hick, that no religion contains the truth, that it only contains a perception? So I ask myself, and have done for years, why are Australians so attracted to pluralism? Either the popular pluralism in the pub, or the sophisticated pluralism of the academy. Why? I reckon there are at least two reasons. One of them is pretty valid. The other is pretty suspect. One motivation is surely the fear of intolerance. It is perhaps rightly believed that if someone adopts a monolithic perspective and believes that one absolute truth has been made available, that will lead to bigotry, discrimination and ultimately to violence. And I've got to say, history is littered with examples of just that. One of the sad things about being a historian is you have to face the dark truth that sometimes people with absolute truth claims have raped and pillaged. I put my hand up as a Christian and say, mea culpa, we've done wrong throughout history in the name of Christ. Pluralists look at this intolerance of history and say it is better than to drop all talk of absolute truth and instead just see all religions as valid vehicles of the sacred. Leaving aside the patronising assumption, I want to question the definition of tolerance that is usually assumed in this call for all religions to regard each other as perfectly valid. Tolerance has become something of a buzzword in our day. Um, in these tense and confusing times, if you just say that your position is the tolerant one, you're likely to win the debate without any critical reflection. Oh, you've got the tolerant view. I'll have, I'll have that. But I want to really question what tolerance is. Because frequently in our day, tolerance means little more than agreement. Agreement. Being tolerant is thought to involve accepting as true or valid all other viewpoints. But I think that definition of tolerance can be questioned, both logically and practically. Hear me out. Does being a tolerant Christian mean I have to accept as true or valid the claim of the Quran that Jesus is not the Son of God and didn't die on a cross. Or to turn it around, does being a tolerant Muslim oblige the Muslim to believe the doctrine contrary to the Quran that Jesus is the Son of God and he died on a cross? Can a Muslim accept that as a valid belief? I think every Muslim and every Christian would say no. What about our Eastern brothers and sisters? Must a tolerant devotee of Vishnu, the emanation of Brahman, accept as true and valid the Buddha's claim that worship of divinities distracts from true wisdom and that Brahman was a figment of the imagination? Or to turn it around, 
Does being a tolerant disciple of Buddha involve accepting as true or valid the Hindu doctrine, contrary to what the Buddha said, that every human being has a soul which returns to Brahman? I think every Buddhist and Hindu would say, no, that can't be tolerance. To complicate things further, um, must tolerant Hindus and Buddhists say amen to the orthodox Jewish doctrine, which contradicts everything in Eastern philosophy, that the dead will be raised at the end of history and live bodily? No. True tolerance does not involve accepting every viewpoint as true and valid. It can't. Not without turning off that part of the brain, which, as I said, lets you walk across the road when it's green, not red. True tolerance does not involve accepting every viewpoint as true and valid. It involves treating with humility, compassion and respect those whose beliefs you hold to be untrue and invalid. Do you see that? This is a critical point and it's something that is majorly lost on our world. It is possible to love and respect and refuse to discriminate against those whose beliefs you hold to be invalid. Merely saying, I agree with every other belief, takes no moral courage, no intellectual commitment at all. But being able to understand the contradictions between the faiths and still say, I love you as a member of the human family, that's tolerance. A tolerant Buddhist, then, is not one who accepts as true and valid the Hindu doctrine of the eternal Atman, the soul. It's one who is able to reject that doctrine and still care for Hindus. A tolerant Christian is not one who accepts as true and valid the Quranic claim that Jesus didn't die on a cross and isn't God in the flesh. No, a tolerant Christian is one who can reject that with confidence and yet still care for Muslims as fellow members of the human family. True tolerance is the ability to treat with compassion and honour those with whom you disagree. There is a second reason our society, I think, is attracted to pluralism. It's not so much got to do with the honourable longing for tolerance in society. It has to do with the long-held Australian tradition of taking the easier of two options. Some call this apathy. I think that's very unkind. I prefer to call it economy of effort. <laughs> Let me illustrate what I mean by economy of effort and then apply it to the question of religious truth. Suppose you were to ask two Chinese friends how to say I love you in Mandarin. One says, that's easy, why me? The other says, don't be ridiculous, it's why You now have a problem which you can resolve in one or two ways. Either you can investigate the issue for yourself. Go down to the library and get out an English Mandarin dictionary and turn to the I love you bit and see which is right. Or you could go to a third Chinese friend and say, hang on, I've got these two people, they're stirring me, you know, what's the, what's the story? Now that might take a whole half hour out of your life. But at least you'd be able to make an intelligent, informed decision. Far easier, though, is simply to sit back and say, ah, oh, they're two different ways of saying the same thing. They're dialect variations of the one common phrase. It's not going to cause any arguments. You just accept both as equally true. It's the ultimate economy of effort. Except, of course, as every Chinese person in the room knows, war henni means I hate you. 
I think you can see my point. When a Hindu affirms the existence of multiple divas emanating from Brahman, and a Sikh insists on the existence of just one God, it produces a dilemma that you can resolve in one of two, two ways. Either you can research the issue, read a book, investigate the historical background and the philosophical background of polytheism versus monotheism. It might take hours out of your life, but at least you'll be able to make an intelligent decision in the end. Far easier is to say, oh, it's basically the same belief. There are both many gods and just one god in some beautifully mysterious way. Economy of effort. Or to offer a more pointed example. When a Christian affirms that Jesus died on a cross for the sins of the world, and a Muslim says, no, he did not and is not, it produces a dilemma that you can resolve in one of two ways. Either you can explore what historians think really happened to Jesus. There's more books on that than you might imagine. Or you can sit back and say they're both true in their own special way. Now, while this might require a level of mental elasticity on your part, <laughs> it's clearly the option requiring the least amount of effort. That's an important thing in Australia. Now, what I'm suggesting, and hopefully not too impolitely, is that our society's keenness to affirm all religious points of view stems in part from an aversion to having to think too much about any one of them. Put another way, the all roads lead to Rome view of spiritual truth often is just a way of justifying that I don't want to look down any one of the roads. Thank you very much. And the result of this sad economy of effort approach is that we're left without a faith at all. Whether to buy an aversion to intolerance or a relaxed economy of effort, this attempt to affirm all viewpoints as valid in their own special way has the potential to leave us without any belief whatsoever. As one of my favourite writers, the English critic G.K. Chesterton once wrote, an open mind is like an open mouth. Its purpose is to bite on something nourishing. Otherwise, it becomes like a sewer, accepting everything, rejecting nothing. The economy of effort approach to religion is a little like Chesterton's all-embracing mouth. We don't honour the world religions by affirming their sameness we honour the world religions by studying their differences and scrutinising their central claims. And it is only after doing that that we can find ourselves biting on something nourishing. And that's the challenge I want to throw out. To those with strong religious beliefs, my challenge is tolerance. <coughs> True tolerance. The admirable ability to love and respect those with whom you disagree. My challenge to those of you who lean toward a pluralistic viewpoint, 
is to scrutinise the claims, find out where truth is to be had. 